I'm Claire Schoen, and uh, I, uh, just by way of a little bit of an introduction, um, I've been an independent producer for 30 years now, um, which means I've basically never had a job, <laughs> but I do love what I do. The uh, last 20 of those years has been in radio, and before that, um, I worked as a documentary filmmaker, which is where I learned the importance of painting the picture, which, as you know, we all do with sound here in radio. Um, and I still, you know, take that over from my film days and try to give a sense of place through sound. Um, and that's what I want to talk about today is what I love to do best, uh, which is painting that picture through verite scenes for documentary radio. Um, so a lot of people say, what's verite? What do you mean by that? Um, to me, it's real simple, kind of dividing line for me, is that a scene is the moment in which a listener has the opportunity to eavesdrop in on something else that's happening beyond themselves. Uh, real people who are in a real place, who are really relating to one another, who are doing something they really would be doing, uh, even if the radio producer wasn't pointing a microphone in their face. Um, I know there are a lot of reels in there, but that's the ideal of what it's all about. And in truth, of course, my being there, the radio recordist being there, does change the reality of any situation. Um, you know, the producer does both influence and even manipulate the situation just by the fact of their presence and also sometimes by the choices they make, which is something I do want to talk about as we get further into this session um, and want to hear from you about sort of that dividing line between reality and manipulation. Um, I love doing verite uh, because um, it can draw the listener into your piece in a very unique way. Um, it makes them care deeply about the people who they're, being, they're involved with. Um, it makes them understand the issues on a different level. Uh, you can tell them all you want conceptually, but it makes them get it in a different way. And if it's good, it, it makes them remember, reflect, and even act on what they've heard, again, in a very unique way. And that's something which we want to have happen with all of our work. Um, and I think that Verite is a really good way to get there. So I want to start by giving you an example of a piece that has a good chunk of Verite in it. Um, this is something which I produced in 1990. I'll start with my own work, but I promise to play other people's work too, maybe better than mine. Um, it's a half-hour documentary I produced in 1994, a uh, national show called Horizons, which was a once great but now defunct uh, show that uh, distributed half-hour documentaries. Um, and this piece uh, is called Hard Work. It follows the story of a young man's struggle to make it in a jobs corps program that's for, quote, at-risk youth. Um, it's a four-minute clip, and the second half is verite. When I finish it, I'll talk a little bit about what is and isn't verite in this and other pieces. So let me just uh, play you a little bit. Again, if it's not loud enough, let me know. outside and stuff, just playing with wrestling and boxing and stuff, you know, heard a gunshot, somebody had just shot him, you know, right here, he had a bullet hole, we don't even know who did it, you know, it was a little drive-by shooting, 
it was like since that happened that kind of affected me you know he was like my best friend it was like you know my buddy Troy you know it was still it still bothered me a lot For many of the youth who live in the inner cities of America, drugs, crime, and gang violence are the norm, and the future holds little hope. To those who grow up in the urban underclass, our society responds with fear and anger. We pass bond issues for prisons and deny funds for schools. We declare war on drugs instead of making peace in the streets. A project in San Francisco is taking a different tack. Based on Roosevelt's Depression-era work programs, the San Francisco Conservation Corps was founded in 1984. Employing the supposedly unemployable, the Corps trains them for the job market and rebuilds the ravaged neighborhoods they grew up in. The Corps has given itself a big job, but it has the right tools, respect, high expectations, and hard work. And it's fast becoming a model for youth training programs in cities throughout the nation. But can it really succeed in overcoming the poverty, addiction, and violence that put the futures of so many youth at risk? And to the extent that it does the job, what makes it work? Reach up! Stretch yourself! Get those arms up in the air! Jumping jacks! Ready, begin! One! Two! Three! Four! Ladies and gentlemen, it is Monday morning. Let's pretend we enjoy work. Let's make some noise. I want you to wake up those people across the street. Ready? Begin. Hut. The time is 7.30 a.m., the place, Fort Mason, San Francisco. In an open field overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge, a group of 130 youth, mostly men, are gathered. They're black, Latino, Asian, Native American, and white. Their military-style morning routine seems appropriate at this decommissioned army base, where these veterans of the city's mean streets begin their day with a tough round of calisthenics. The morning exercise ends with a mile-long run. As the group takes off, Corps Director Robert Burkhart pulls aside two young men. Maurice, what's with you? I just, I just went to go get a donut. Well, I went down Safeway, right? You guys walk up here. No, we no, just we We jogged up here. I'm here to tell door. you, you are on such thin ice, Maurice. You know what's going to happen if you do that again? If I... Probably, yeah. Take off. Both of you. Start running real fast. Robert Burkhardt's style is a cross between that of a preacher and a drill sergeant. He demands a lot of the core members in his program, and of himself as well. After lecturing DJ and Maurice, he takes off with them to run the course. So I really love that clip because uh, that's the first four minutes in this half hour uh, because I think it, it sets a stage for the story. Um, it, it, you know, you're, you're listening to Robert Burkhart's you know, barking commands and then you're listening to him chew out poor old Maurice. And uh, it, that's what the, you know, and he talks, or I guess the narration talks about the, the tough love approach of 
of this uh, of the strategy of their program and I can tell you it's a tough love approach or Robert Burkhardt can but when you hear him chewing out Maurice you know you get it again on a different level and um, so I think that he can do it so much better for the listener that that's the reason that I include Verite in my pieces um, so thinking a lot about what I mean by a scene I've also given a lot of thought to what is not a scene. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> that to provide some clarity to this discussion. Um, <clears throat> basically, simply, my definition of what's not a scene is when the speaker is speaking to the microphone, to the producer, to the audience, period. Anytime they're doing that, it's not a scene. They're talking to you, they're not talking, they're doing something they wouldn't be doing in real life. Um, so, for instance, the first half of the piece I just played you, the guy talking about the drive-by shooting, not a scene. It's a story. It's a story he was obviously telling me. He wouldn't have been telling it otherwise. Robert Burkhart chewing out Maurice is a scene, is verite. He was going to do that whether I was there or not. So, from that perspective, narration, of course, is not, a, is not verite. Music, unless it's in a performance that is happening within a scene anyway, is not verite. Interviews, commentaries, uh, any kind of self-narration, a character saying, you know, here we are standing by the milking barn, is not verite, because they're saying it again to tell you where we are. A character explaining an activity or taking someone, your listener on a tour, is not, a, is not verite. Um, you know, when a character, for instance, saying, this is how I plant a tree. First I dig the hole, then I put the tree in. That doesn't count. However, if he's explaining to his co-worker how to plant the tree, first you dig this hole, then go over there, get that tree over there, and put that little seedling in here, that's verite, because they're doing that together by themselves anyway. Um, radio diaries, uh, which is the new big thing in, in independent documentary and probably brought to the forefront by the brilliance of people like Joe Richmond. I love radio diaries. Um, I guess you all know what that is. It's telling a story in, uh, where the character's telling a story in first person. Uh, you know, wonderful, inspiring, not verite. Uh, vox pop, man on the street, not verite. Storytelling, like the beginning of this piece. Dramatic readings, recreations, not verite. Uh, even ambience and effects beds that are laid in, say, under a piece of narration or an interview to give you some color of a scene doesn't, put, doesn't make it a scene, doesn't make it something that's really happening. Doesn't count. Um, archival can, very often, uh, be verite, because, again, it's something you've captured from the past, but if it's something you've captured from the past that was actually something happening then, then, then I count it. Uh, and it may seem like I'm being really nitpicking here, um, but there really is something different and wonderful that happens when something, quote, real happens. Um, rather than telling your listeners about an idea through a narration or through interview, you're allowing them to experience something that is unfolding out there in the world. And so they end up understanding it on an emotional level rather than an intellectual level. And it's really, that's what it's about. It's how you know, it's being processed that makes your listener, gives your listener sort of this other kind of information. Now, the trade-off is that you can't get a lot of information 
through this way often. Um, you know, narration interviews are much better at relaying facts and concepts. Um, and so sometimes it's often, always, it's very hard to get an editor to give you enough time to really let Verite play out. You know, they'll say, okay, we've had 10 seconds of that, you know, so we know that. Let's get on with the real business, which is giving our listeners the facts. Um, and what you're giving listeners is, again, something intellectual, analytical, abstract when you're giving them the facts through narration or through an interview. Um, and I think that you really are giving some, them something, even if it isn't factual content, when it's, you know, when you let your verite play out. Um, it's working on your audience on a, I said, an emotional level, I, I could even say on a gut level. Uh, it makes them care about your characters, about the issues, and makes them relate personally to the situation so that when they learn about the content, they care about it and they, they can relate to it. I want to play you another example of this kind of impact that Verite can have um, on the listener. This is a, a piece that's uh, from a documentary by John Bewin, uh, who produced this as an hour-long piece for American Radio Works. It's called the, the piece is called The Forgo um, Forgotten 14 Million, um, which is about child poverty in America. Uh, John is uh, currently working at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, uh, but before that he produced documentaries for eight years for American Radio Works. Um, and for this piece, he won a Robert F. Kennedy Award, which is one of John's many awards. Great producer. Um, and uh, this excerpt, which runs about two minutes, um, you're listening in on a mom who's admonishing her son for getting married, for wanting to get married too early, one of those traps of poverty that he's talking about. So let me play you this little clip. Brittany's cousin, Jim Wallen, the 12-year-old who doesn't like school, eats his evening meal in a chair in front of the TV. With his fork, he taps out the beat to an ad for a college scholarship program. If you ask Jim's mother, Janet, what she thinks about the middle-class world on the television, the implied contrast to her own life seems to poke at her pride. We get everything we need. As long as we get what we need and everything, make a living, that's it. In which daddy's out making a living and everything. Mommy's at home and taking care of the kids in the house. So that's the way I see it. But at other times, Janet shows a very different and fierce wish for her sons. For instance, when Jim says he'd like to get married at 18 or 21 at the oldest. Huh? You're allowed to get married when you're 21. Yeah, you're allowed to get married when you're 21, but where are you going to take her to? I don't know. Without the money and without a home, you got to have a uh -huh. money and you got to have a home to take her to. Yeah, but I'm going to get me a home first. There ain't no way you can get married at the age of 18 and think that you can go through college, get a job, and support a family, and rent your own home and everything else. You can't do that. That's what Mommy and Daddy's been trying to tell you. You get your education and everything. Then you can get you a woman. Other than that, you ain't, if you don't go to, through all of that, then you ain't going to have nothing. And you know it. And you know it, too. So as a listener, I, um, I sort of cringe along with the kid who's getting chewed out on the one hand, and I also feel the mom's frustration. So I'm 
reacting to it on, a, on an emotional level that I wouldn't get if they were just telling me about how marrying early is, is uh, a negative factor for making it out of poverty. I want to talk a little bit about what it takes to record Verite. Um, I think any kind of radio um, uh, producing recording has its own set of challenges. Um, Verite certainly does. Um, creating great Verite takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of tape. And it takes lots and lots and lots of patience. Um, so it is, for one thing, time consuming. I uh, s spend way too much time with my characters. Not, not too much time, but a lot of time with my characters. Um, sometimes weeks, just as a fly on the wall, what I call immersion uh, style recording, being with my characters. And part of this is just simply to get the characters comfortable with the fact that I'm going to record them, that I got all this equipment, that you know, build a relationship, build trust, and get them to ignore the equipment. Um, it's also really important to be there for a long time because you don't know when the moment's going to come, and sometimes it takes a while for that moment that's going to really work for you to, to come. Uh, I may influence the direction of the discussion a bit by asking provocative questions and then trying to step out of the spotlight again. Uh, this is one of those aspects where manipulation comes into play even further than me just being there. And doing this is controversial. Uh, some people do it more, some less. Some say you just can't talk to your subjects at all if it's going to be verite. Mostly, though, I do just hang out, um, even though I do understand that just being there has influenced the reality of what's going on. But I try not to, for the most part, when I'm doing verite recording, interact with my um, subjects. And because I got all this equipment and the mic directed at them, people tend to want to talk to me. And one technique I have for dealing with that is if, if they keep, you know, facing me, talking to me, I just look down at my equipment and I start playing with my dials and, you know, checking everything out. I'm just down here and I'm down here and I'm down here until the point where they're going to give up because I'm not making eye contact with them. And so they start looking at each other, then talking to each other again. Um, so one little way that you can help that, which is also influencing what's going on, but trying to influence it to make it, bring it back to reality. Um, I record every conceivable ambience and effect that passes by my microphone. I try to do this separate and clean without the characters' voices, um, except in, in recording uh, walla, which is, as I, you guys know, the term walla is, um, it might be a sound for film term. Um, uh, walla is uh, human ambience, a lot of voices where you can't distinguish any one voice, sort of the walla, 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 walla of a crowd. So that's an ambience itself, even though it's people. Um, but, you know, I do try to get all of the different pieces of the sound separate, as well as the action itself. Uh, John Bewin, when he sent me this, uh, this piece from the Forgotten 14, also sent me a, a little uh, um, quote that I want to read you about how he got this piece. Uh, he says, I recall sitting around that evening rolling lots of tape as Janet Wallen, the mom, cooked dinner and her husband came home from work and the family sat around watching TV. I would occasionally ask a question but also just sat for stretches recording tape with nothing much happening. 
people can only be on for so long and then they get tired of it. So if you stay long enough as a fly on the wall, he uses that term too, they'll eventually go back to being themselves. I was sitting in a chair maybe six feet from Jim and Janet when this exchange took place. I did get palpitations as Janet got rolling on her lecture. I leaned forward a little with my mic, but not too much because I didn't want to make them self-conscious. Uh, so sort of mirroring some of the same kinds of approaches I take. So takes a lot of time. Also takes mountains of tape to capture verite, and I know the word tape is a anachronism by now for the digital age, but I still use it, this Luddite, and I will continue to use it. I think it's a, a it, the word makes sense, even in the days of uh, files. John uh, Bewin says he records 60 to 1. For every minute of tape, he's recorded an hour. Uh, for every hour-long show, <laughs> 60 hours. I think uh, for Verite, for my Verite scenes, I record at least that much, although for an entire documentary, I'm down to more like 40 to 1. Uh, still a lot of tape. Um, so along with recording topic-centered conversations and activities, like this woman and her son talking about marriage and making it out of poverty, I also record uh, people performing the mundane activities of their lives. And it's often this mundaneness that is the most interesting and the most revealing. It shows characters as being multifaceted, real people. It also very often in some way makes a statement about the content, and I'll give an example of that. Um, so recording, the downside of recording lots of tape is that you end up having to manage lots of tape, organizing it, logging, transcribing, selecting, cutting, and then painfully rejecting the terrific moments that you are in love with but don't quite work with the rest of your story. Um, one change that's come about in the digital age which makes me very happy is the pre-roll buffer on flash recorders and for those of you who have flash recorders you get it but for those of you who don't um, you can set up a flash recorder to um, give you four to ten seconds usually of a pre-roll buffer which means when you push record it gives you those four seconds ahead of time that you uh, that have been put into memory and it, it records them onto your uh, your file. So if somebody said something and you weren't on and all of a sudden, oh boy, I really needed that and you push record, at least you got the beginning of that sentence. Um, it only works, however, if your mic is in place already. If I'm here and you start talking and it was really good and I push record and come over to you, I've missed it because you're not on mic. So my mic has to be on all the time, has to be where I think it needs to be in order to get the sound. I just don't have to be rolling the tape. And even more important, really most importantly, your mind has to be on. And that gets hard when you're there. You may not be rolling for hours and hours, but you're in a scene for hours and hours and you really have to be paying attention the whole time. While you're looking at your dials, making sure your mic's in place, relating to people as a human being, you have to be thinking, what are they doing? How might this work? Is this part of what I'm doing? Are they maybe gonna do, do the moment that I need soon? And be conscious of that constantly. And that can be exhausting. And that's that kind of active listening is I think the most important part of, of being a sound recordist, certainly a verite sound recordist. Um, so I want to give you another example uh, from m my work that uh, shows uh, some of this um, 
Uh, let's see. I was going to. Yeah, okay. Uh, that uh, talks about some of these things I was just talking about, uh, including how much time it takes to get it. Um, this is uh, three short pieces together. They make about four minutes that I cut into about a 20-minute segment that's part of a three-hour documentary series called Heart to Heart, uh, which is about uh, caregiving for people facing death. And this hour that this is drawn from, one of the things it looks at is uh, the issue of how racism impacts the quality of care some people get. Uh, the character in this little segment is uh, Regina Dyer. She's an African-American woman who was dying of breast cancer when I met her. Um, and she feels that uh, her doctor's assumptions of who she was was aff affecting the kind of care that they were giving her. Uh, the scene that we have here in these segments is Regina Dyer's kitchen and her, um, her dining room. She invited me over for Sunday dinner after church at 1 o'clock, and I thought, well, 1 o'clock after church, that's when some people have dinner. I, I get that, even though I don't do that. And so I showed up about 12 o'clock, actually. We had dinner at 7, uh, and I left at 10. So I was there for 10 hours with my mic poised and my mind open and my tape rolling, not all those 10 hours, but some of the time. And the girls were really shy of me, and I was glad that dinner wasn't until 7 o'clock, as it turned out, because it took them a while to really kind of warm up to me. And at one point, they just broke out into song, and I said, there's my moment. Thank you, God. Um, but uh, it took a while. So I want to play this and then play these three clips, and then, uh, which together, like I said, are about four minutes, and then talk to you a little bit more about them. When does cultural stereotyping and miscommunication become outright racism? I was there in the emergency room, you know, because I was in bad shape. I, I had broke out, my face was swollen. I stooped over because I couldn't walk. And um, the doctor would not admit me. He told me he could not justify admitting me. I mean, it was terrible that he would let me leave that hospital. Assumptions about who Regina was were based on how she looked. And when I went up there, I looked terrible, because I had been sick, I, you know. I, I couldn't put my clothes on. My hair wasn't combed at all. And, you know, I looked like some bad person, and, and I was black, you know. And he probably assumed that I was some single poor mom or something, not too bright, you know. I think they think you're looking for a place to stay, or, or you want drugs or something, you know. String beans. y'all making gravy or something? Regina Dyer does not fit the bag lady stereotype. She's college educated and she owns her own home where she lives with three of her seven children. On Sundays, the whole clan comes over after church to fix and eat a huge supper. Pots are on every burner and preparation takes hours as several main dishes are prepared in a small bustling kitchen. Over and over again. That's my phone. 
I got them little um, Italian peppers. Oh, I like the smell of them and the taste of them. Ooh, yeah. Like the Make your food smell good, even if it's nasty. I said the seeds in it, but I said the seeds is what really the bell pepper flavor is. Yeah, save the seeds. They don't know you, but they've already put you in a category, you know. The difference between having your own insurance and then being a Medi-Cal um, recipient, they just don't treat you the same. And I've had it both ways. With my good insurance, honey, they had a field day. I had an isotope type of thing done, really sophisticated, high-tech stuff. I had the endoscopy, I had it like three times. In, on an assortment of CAT scans. I'm telling you, they had a field day. Medi-Cal, I've yet to have a scan. You have to almost be dead. Narrow <laughs> oh, barrel. Hey, Denaro, go get Grandma's cup, my tea, off the dining room table. There's no question in my mind that until we deal with the race issue in America, none of these issues will be resolved. Go save your seat at the table. Yeah. It's a fork on a big table. Ready? Yes. We thank you, Lord, for the food that you have provided, for the nourishment of our bodies. Use it to sanctify us, Lord, and to strengthen us in our bodies. And bless those that are without. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, so, I wanted to play these pieces to talk not just about how long it took me to get them, but also to demonstrate how ordinary, mundane life can be used to make your points. Um, Regina says in that little music, that piece that's punctuated by music, interview punctuated by music, that um, the story of her doctors thinking she was a homeless drug addict and that's why they wouldn't admit her to the hospital when she had this raging cancer. She tells you that story, but, you know, hanging out with your family, you get it on a different level. You get that she has her own home, that she has a family that's supportive of her, that comes over every Sunday, that makes dinner with her, that prays with her, that, that she has this community, that she is far from being a homeless drug addict. Um, and then when she talks later about the medical versus private insurance, again, a piece of interview, um, she can tell you that information, but by the time you're done with this piece, you really learn to care about Regina. And so you care about her predicament. And you care that people like her are not getting 
what they need from, from Medi-Cal and Medicare. Um, Medi-Cal for us in California. Um, <clears throat> so it's that way of learning to identify with a person, making you get it on a different level. I want to play something uh, by someone else again uh, who also to demonstrate some of these same ideas of how long it takes to get it, how how you learn to understand a piece on a different level. And this is a uh, clip from a piece produced by Karen Brown. Uh, the documentary was called A Burden to Be Well. Um, she works for WFCR in Western Massachusetts, but also produces radio documentaries for national broadcast. And this is a half-hour doc she produced about the trauma of growing up with a mentally ill sibling, the sisters and brothers of the mentally ill. And the element which I'm going to highlight here, uh, one of the stories in her piece, is the relationship between twin sisters Carolyn and Pam. Pam is a severe schizophrenic. And Carolyn has been frustrated for 50 years dealing with her sister. Um, and these are a couple of bites, actually, that I've put together uh, that together total about three minutes. So let me play this piece of Karen Brown's. Pam's paranoia is never entirely gone. Even in the middle of the tour, she's still hallucinating about something she calls the hazmat man. That's a figure Pam sees when she looks at the hazardous materials emblem on her plastic medical baggies. Carolyn tries to empathize. I think I see what you're talking about. Yeah, the eyebrows and that. No, no. The head is up here. Oh. The arms are down over here. Okay, no, I don't. Is it a threatening man, or is it just... Well, it's not threatening now, because I know where the real has not man is. He's uh, locked up in a, uh, an Altoid box. This is where Double. Carolyn's face goes Double. from bemused Double. to exasperated. You don't really believe that, do you? I mean, I have the box, and it's still taped up. And Keep it taped I up. I do, but you don't really believe this, do you? I mean, in all honesty. There are times that it feels like a lot when, when I'm getting behind in my own bills, when she's getting sick, when she's deciding on her own not to take medication, which she's not doing at the moment, but you, then I feel it. Oh, yeah. Then it's an imposition. Then I hate it. Yeah, you've got the freedom to not take medication because you're independent. You get to do what you want when you want to do it in the hell with whatever I want. And guess whose freedom you get to take away? Mine. These days, Carolyn has a new worry about her twin sister. Pam's been losing weight rapidly. She's under 90 pounds. Her genes barely hang on her hips. And given her history with anorexia, the doctors are concerned. During this visit, Carolyn gets peanut butter out of her fridge and begs Pam to eat. You need to eat to maintain your weight so that you can at least have clothes that hang on your body that don't fall off and so that you don't get a cardiac arrhythmia, and so I that... I have a heart attack. Uh, I've already told you this a million times. Can no, give tell you, me. Can tell give me. Pam starts to tremble at her sister's scolding and walks out of the kitchen, but then she comes back and lets Carolyn finish. That it's no different than you not taking your antipsychotic medication for me. I can't stop you. 
all I can do is sit and watch and feel helplessness, despair. I mean, I have no control over you. I have no control over this. So once again, my future with you is linked to something I have no control over. Uh, so Karen said she produced this piece over the course of a year. Uh, it took her that long to find people to trust her in this very delicate situation. Um, she spent a lot of time tagging along to doctor's visits, to grocery stores when she did find characters who would work with her, just because she said that's when stuff happens, um, when, you know, rather than in sort of you know, the expected confines of normal life in a living room, for instance. She says that she always starts recording before she enters a room. Uh, because the best things happen unexpectedly. And I agree, I also, I never take my rig off from the time I leave my car to the time I get back to my car. And as I walk into a room and leave a room, I, I'm always recording. It's sort of something, sometimes just happens there. Um, the argument of, of, about Pam's weight between Pam and Carolyn, uh, she said lasted 20 minutes. And uh, between Pam and Carolyn, right? And Karen was there for the whole time with a shotgun mic right in their faces. Uh, and she said it was awkward to do that at first, but it just needed to be done, so she did it. And they ignored her because they were used to her by then because they were so wrapped up in their own anger around this. And she says she also records a ton of tape. Um, when putting together a, a piece based on Verite, having your characters tell their own story gives you an added benefit kind of character commentary rather than narration commentary. And one of the best examples, I think, of Verite period and maybe documentary uh, is Long Haul Productions. Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister have a huge and wonderful body of documentary work, and I, I encourage everyone to go up to longhaulpro.org. Uh, they say they have over 100 docs and oral histories that kind of boggles my mind, considering the level of, of uh, craft they have in these pieces. Um, but I want to play you a, a cut from one of their pieces called Moving Out the Bricks. And the Bricks is apparently a high-rise housing project here in Chicago. Unfortunately, both Dan and Elizabeth are out of town this week. But uh, so there's this woman, Catherine, or Coco, who's living in this high-rise Chicago uh, housing project, and she gets the opportunity to move out into her first private market apartment, which she sees as an opportunity to turn her life around, to get her GED, to get a job, basically to associate with a different crowd. Um, but her new life is not what she expected it to be. And uh, there are two scenes here which I've put together, first with her landlady, who is uh, her new landlady, who's pretty unhappy with her old lifestyle, which she's brought with her, and is threatening to evict her if she doesn't act differently. And then Coco talking with her friends about what she's going to do about that. So again, let me play this and then tell you a few things about it that I find to be real wonderful. Hey, how y'all feeling? The landlady came over. She laid down a couple of rules and regulations. A few I liked it, a few I didn't. I I'm going to be honest with you. I'm very concerned about the walls in such a short period of time. Right. Um, when I see stuff like this, I'm going to be like, okay, is it being taken care of? Because 
you all have been here what about a week or two right and i know you got kids my name is nicole johnson i'm the landlord of south union um i had gotten a complaint from um the neighbors next door the owner actually called me luckily i knew him and um it was two of his people in his building complained that on uh, wednesday and thursday of last week it was excessive amount of noise on the front porch and people were out and i came over late that friday because it was concern of mine that the you know we were out of compliance with the lease okay it's just a couple things that I want to reiterate. I live right around the corner, so I'm always driving by, and consistently it is like it's like a lot of traffic. You do want to, especially if you have a place that's nice, you do want to cut down on traffic. I'm just being honest with you. I don't know what you, she's talking I know the about. Baby, young, really? Young, like she don't want us to have company at all. What? What's the problem? You, you're not all mama means you running some type of girl shelter here or something. Well, what are you saying? Well, my concern would be that um, oftentimes, you know, a lot of black men may not, I don't know anything about them. I don't know if they have a job or they don't. I just know it's just historically, if you think about um, with, with a lot of black men, they just be looking for women to take advantage of and live off of them and move into something that is and not treat them well, not so and so, so and so. I don't know if that's happening or not. But all I know is that when you start respecting yourself as a woman and looking and viewing things differently, I would never have traffic coming in and out of my house. I don't have it unless I, for some apparent reason, was having some get-together to celebrate someone's birthday or something like that. Other than that, my home has become my sacred place. And I think that as a woman, you learn um, traffic going in and out should just be minimal. But if you didn't come from that environment, it's much more difficult to live that lifestyle. I don't know. I guess we just got to get over our little ghetto mentality. We've been living on 35th for quite a while, you know. So I guess she, she's saying a lot of stuff for the best interest of us in this building. But certain things she's saying that I just, I'm not feeling her. What? The company. No sitting on the porch. Beat it. Well, you allowed to sit on the back porch, but not on the front porch. I'm saying though, I mean, I understand that, but I think that's like rude. We've been living on 35th all our life, and it's like we never was able to sit on our porch. We don't be rowdy, we just be sitting there. Everybody else sit on their porch. I mean, you the landlord, if that's what you say, that's what we got to follow. We, as African American people, we don't have time to sit our butts around doing nothing. I'm sorry, it is always something to do. Like, I don't believe in people just sitting idle. I can't help somebody that can't help themselves. So one of my expectations for every last one of my tenants is for them to be moving forward. So that's why I dedicate most of all of my time to helping change people's lives. Every month, I do an event at the shelter in memory of my sister who spent her entire life on public assistance. I guess we can deal with it, but it's gonna be hot a couple of more days this year. And until then, we're going to sit on the porch, so she's going to evict me. Oh, well, evict me, because I'm not going to keep my kids cooped up in the house all day. When I came back upstairs, I asked my friends, like, what y'all think? Is she that strict, like you said, she coming to you every week with something different? It's the walls, it's the people on the porch. Best thing you do is find somewhere else, but who's said nothing? That Lord won't be the same way. Because right. it might be hard for you to find another apartment. So you, and you, this nice. I'm keeping it real, this That's nice. But I wouldn't be able to deal with her. You have to follow your heart. If you really like the apartment and you want to be here, try to stick it out. No, I got to sleep on it. Uh, so, um, as you notice in this, what, this clip, and in actually the whole piece and in a lot of their pieces, there is no narration. There is Coco 
self-narrating. There's the landlady telling you what's going on. Um, Dan explained to me that the way he operates uh, is he, uh, they go in and they interview the characters before the scene. Where are we? What are we doing here? What do you expect to have happen? They record that and then they record the scene and then after the scene they do a second interview. What just happened? How do you feel about it? And then they insert those commentaries in of the interviews, the pre and post interviews into the scene. And yeah. So is that how so is that how they got the I asked my friend about this? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of them. I'll give you a couple of examples here where what I love about their do what they're doing is the way they move in and out of commentary and verite. Um, there are a couple of times, one, for instance, where she's obviously talking in an interview afterwards uh, when she says, I don't know what she's talking about. She don't want us to have any company at all. She's saying that to us. And then she's saying, obviously to the landlady, you running a girl's shelter here or something? What are you saying? And yet, the way that's cut, unless you think about it, it's sort of like all there. So on the one hand, if you do step back and think about it, is that manipulation okay? In terms of the piece itself, it really works. It makes it more real. You're kind of, it's sort of like um, the magic of real life verite when you can also hear somebody's thoughts because this is a thought she had after, but it's sort of like, I'm sure that's what she was thinking at the time when she was talking to that landlady. You know, in her head she was saying, I don't know what she's talking about. And then she says, you know, to the landlady. Another one like that is, um, she says, obviously to us, about the landlady, no sitting on the front porch, beat it. Like, really kind of pissed off. The landlady responds to her and says, well, you're allowed to sit on the back porch. But she hadn't said that to the landlady. She wouldn't have said that to the landlady. So, you know, there's ways that you manipulate that kind of can make things more interesting, more real. Uh, Karen's piece did that too. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, she started talking about how difficult, how frustrating it was to deal with her sister. And then at one point she says, you get the freedom to do this. You get to do this. And I'm the one who suffers for it. I don't remember exactly how it went. But that's something she said to her sister in that moment of anger. And she just seamlessly, seamlessly slid into that in her editing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what gear I use and, and other people use for recording verite. Um, I keep it very simple when I go out in the field. Uh, I only have one setup, and I know my setup, and I don't have to think about learning a new setup for different situations, because I got too much else to think about, particularly active listening. Uh, but I do have pretty good equipment, which I think is important. Um, I have a condenser mic, so it's more sensitive than a dynamic, gives you a longer reach. Um, I have a Neumann stereo, in fact, that lets me dial from, I have this little box on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on my rig. Um, my sound recorder that has attached the mic and lets me dial from a wide stereo to a very narrow stereo uh, so that in a different situation, I don't have to put on a new mic. I can just change the width of my stereo. Um, I wear, uh, I'm, I'm heavily geared up in that, you know, I wear heavy headphones. Uh, I use the Sony MD V6, which are kind of state of the art, although I think now they're called V8. Mine are still working, so I'm not trading them in. I have a pretty big recorder, the Sound Devices 722 flash recorder. My mic's pretty big, 
it's on a fishpole, uh, which I think is really important. It collapses down to about this big, and that allows me to have a, an interview with someone this far away, giving myself and that person some personal distance, but still having the mic itself really close. And then when I do scenes, I stretch it out as far as six feet, usually more like four feet, so I can have this kind of distance between these two people in the front row having an argument and me not being in your face, but my mic being in your face. Yeah. I work for CBC Radio, and we do everything mono. We don't have stereo. Mm -hmm. So how would you, if you're in a scene, like the kitchen scene you were in with that woman I just started actually working stereo recently, much to my embarrassment. I should have been doing it years ago. But I do it in the mix. I stereoize people in the mix. Uh, you know, I get you, and then I get you, both mono, and then as you're, you know, I may put you on different tracks, or I may just take those segments and in my in my final mix, move you a little bit over to left channel and you over to right, and I do layers of ambiences, uh, which I'll get to later. Where may have, you know, it's all from the location, but I may take the same ambience that was going on, do two layers of it slightly off of each other, and make one more left and one more right, and all of a sudden people are louder in your different ears in different parts of the room. So. I have my mic wherever the action is and close. Okay. When when I'm on mono, stereo is different. I know, for mono, so you yeah. Like oh yeah. I was wondering if you just repeat what you said about like layering and, and, and offsetting. Something. Okay. Um, you know, you I've gotten my ambience separate, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in the editing. Um, and I lay instead of just laying in a track of ambience, um, I may lay in that track of ambience twice, but. Uh, mixing the pieces up within the ambience or offsetting them from each other. So instead of them being like, you know, this, they're like this, you know, so they're running, different stuff is running different places in the two different tracks. And if it's a busy enough thing where you're not like hearing a specific person following a specific voice, and then take one of those tracks and make it more to the left and the other track and make it more to the right. And although, because it doesn't work if there's a specific voice on both of them because then the person will jump the room. But if it's just a general, you know, hospital waiting room with a lot of buzz, so then all of a sudden some people are more over here and some busy stuff is more over here and the room starts sounding stereo. So that's called stereoizing in the mix. Um, I'll talk more down the road about, about editing. Uh, but yeah, I'm real big on the fishpole thing. Where I do draw the line, however, is a zeppelin uh, on my mic, which are those things that look like a zeppelin uh, um, over your microphone. Very good for wind, uh, problems with wind. I don't use one because, again, it's a lot of screws and stuff to take it off and to put it on, to set. You have to put it on a different kind of um, shock mount than you'd have otherwise. And I don't want to put everything down and, and re-rig. What I do do instead is I have a regular thin foam sleeve that goes onto the mic, and then I have a fatter foam sleeve called a, a smoothie, and also a fat foam sleeve that has fuzzy fur over it called a fuzzy, and they all just slip on and off the mic. So I have a little backpack with some windscreens, and if I go outside, I can just take one off and put the other on, and it's real quick. And um, a little plug here for K-Tech, K-T-E-C-H, 
T-E-E-K, who, hand, who, who designed uh, windscreens for me and fish poles, actually, uh, for n practically no, no extra money. They were really, really good people. Um, and uh, if you need those kind of sort of s specialized uh, uh, additions to your rig, I really love those guys. They've been good to me. So the whole thing looks a little intimidating when I'm done, um, but it lets me mic close to the individual, uh, follow voices in a group without bringing my body in, and I just go into a room acting normal, like this is the way we do it in my profession. And if you come in with confidence that this is what one does, then they have the confidence to say, oh, I guess this is what one does. I, I'll accept it, and I'll also sort of play by her rules. And at first they may be a little intimidated, but you know, the more anxious you are the m about, well, are you going to be scared of me, the more they're going to say, I guess I can be scared of them or of, of this situation. So you, I just go in and say, this is what we're doing, guys. And people say, oh, uh, okay. And then a few minutes later, they've just forgotten the whole thing. Um, the opposite philosophy, uh, the idea of guerrilla-style recording other people opt for, which is a small recorder tucked into your pocket, a small handheld mic without any any uh, hand grip or, or shock mount or fish pole like this that you can also kind of just tuck in your pocket when you're done. Earbuds, so you hear something but not much. Uh, the idea is to be inconspicuous, to blend into the scene, to not scare your subjects. I think that works for some people, or they certainly do. I'm too invested in getting the best sound I possibly can, and maybe I'm not as good a sound recordist as people who can do this. Um, so I really feel for me, it's important to have, to rig up um, to what I need to get the sound I need. Um, and I also don't want to pretend that I'm not recording, because uh, that's sort of part of the dynamic. This is what's happening. A third miking technique that uh, Nina Ellis brought to my attention, although other people I'm finding do it too, and I've done it once or twice, is when you have two people who are not close to each other and you want to record them both, a lavalier, mic, both two mono mics, a lavalier wireless on your main character and a shotgun on a fish pole in your other, um, in the other channel, which you can rove with. So for instance, um, I've used this when I've uh, recorded a politician working a crowd. I just put the lav on the politician, she does her thing, and I go wherever the crowd seems most interesting, and I may be a ways away from her, and I'm still getting her very close. I did that with a guy at an award ceremony. Um, he was uh, getting the award, and so he was like all over the place working the crowd, and everyone was interested in him, and I wanted to get the crowd, you know, get people, certain people saying certain things to him. So it gave me that flexibility to roam away from him, um, except for the point where he came up to me and said, could you please turn off my love? Now I'm going to the bathroom, <laughs> which is something you have to watch for. Uh, Dan Collison says he works that way at Long Haul. Uh, Nina Ellis, who said she used it to do this series about um, uh, a one-room schoolhouse where she had the lav on, on the teacher and then she could roam the classroom. Um, so that's um, another option. Wanted to play you something. Uh, yeah. Uh, when, you go, when, you, when you're using a lav and you're trying to get ambient sound, are you going both mono in left and right channels on your recorder? Okay. Yeah, and you're just getting uh, whatever ambience is probably coming in the shotgun is going to be most useful. Though depends. You can also get the ambience if she stops talking on the lav. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that is one time when I do change my rig, but I don't do it very often. So with all the great ways which you can record, um, you sometimes run into challenges, and I want to play you a piece from uh, Nina Jacoby, who is a student at SALT. Rob Rosenthal pointed her out to me, thank you, um, who did a piece for her SALT project in 2006 about a young woman training to become a doula, uh, who is a birth coach or ad birth advocate, who is herself witnessing her first birth, this young doula to be. No n outside narration in this piece, just commentary. Um, I'll play the piece and tell you afterwards how she recorded the sound. Uh, this is a four-minute bite out of her piece, which I think was six minutes altogether. Hi, I am calling on behalf of Jessica and Justin Cross and their doula. And Justin wanted me to call you guys and tell you that we're all at the Ballard House and the baby is coming. It's about... I'll get the tub going. Now we're at the Ballard House and uh, Jess is in the second birth suite and Justin's in there with her and she's definitely having contractions. Ow, 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 ow! You want pressure on your back? Jess is in the tub, Justin is on the left of her. Are these for stopping bleeding? The Ballard House is like a house. It's called a birth center for community wellness. It doesn't feel like a hospital. It doesn't smell like a hospital. It's not a hospital. No, it hurts. It hurts. I can do it, Jess. It totally has this philosophy of natural birth, no medical interventions, unless absolutely necessary. Oh, it's getting worse. Okay. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, ah. Uh. That's it. What I've learned about medical interventions is just that one perpetuates the other. Oh, my God. It's just not how it's meant to be, and it's not how it's done in other cultures, and it's just this sort of overcomplicated process that we've created here because we can, but if you don't need them, I don't think you should use them. The baby's heart rate's a little high, like 160 instead of 140, so fluids and cold towels to bring Jess's temperature. I had a bucket of ice water and I was wringing rags oh. and putting them on her back and her neck and her face. Oh. Push down a little bit with it, see how it feels. I was holding her hand. I mean, that's the closest I came to really understanding what she was feeling by the intensity with which she squeezed. Oh, oh my God, it hurts. Don't run away from it now, push into it. The contractions started being so close together really quickly. Okay, ready? Mm -hmm. uh, Focus, Jess. Okay. There was all this shuffle of things, like, I don't even know what there were. Things to clip the cord, towels, suction. There you go. Okay. I was just very present. I, I was aware of what was happening. I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is giving birth. And like, each contraction I was thinking, I can't imagine what that feels like. But I, I know that it's working. I need the bulbs around your paper. It was so fast. Oh my god. 
I thought I might cry, but I didn't at all. It just seemed very normal somehow in that moment. Right here. Sadie came in. Sadie was super excited. That's her. That's her. She's here. So once again, no outside narration, just commentary from the doula and the birthing mother. Um, so Nina did this for a class project. She was waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to give birth. It was two weeks before the class was over. Her piece, when she found this woman, uh, her, her piece hinged on the birth, obviously. And at the last minute, the husband decided that he didn't want Nina in the room. So she was panicked, desperate, and then got into action. She uh, hooked Megan, the birthing mother, up with a $10 lavalier mic, uh, put a mini disc clipped to her belt, to a belt around her rather large belly, uh, and Nina spent six hours outside the door changing batteries and mini discs when things with, I guess, I don't know if, know if she had headphones or anything, but she was totally out of control of this situation. Um, and on top of it, it was a water birth. So what was going to happen to her equipment when, you know, somebody plunged this mother into water? Uh, and then she did a, a recorded a, a pre and post interview along with the six hours of tape she had. Now, she has chosen to use a few pieces here that do have some distortion, but she got the water. She got the heart monitor. She certainly got the moaning. She got the sister, uh, the big sister. She said as she was listening to this tape, not having heard the birth, it was like, what's that? And then someone would say, oh, that was the Doppler monitor, the heart monitor. You know, So she couldn't even figure out what some of her stuff was. Um, and I think she put together a really good piece. So uh, there are different ways to, the moral of that story is, there are different ways to get your tape. And you get it the way you, you have to get it. A few thoughts on editing scenes. Um, as I said, I record everything uh, on location. And I. Um, reconstruct in the editing room my scene. Um, when the main characters are talking, I try to keep the background to the minimum without saying, no, you have to be in this room, not that, because it is verite after all. But miking as close as I can, angling away from loud sound. Um, and then I record lots of effects and ambiences separately, sometimes just, oh, nobody's talking now, I'll go get this. or actually intervening and asking people to please be quiet so I can get the sizzling of the fish in the pan uh, for the kitchen scene for Regina, or can everyone be quiet? I need to open and close this door again that you guys just went through. I walk behind people to get their footsteps. And then I take all these bits and pieces and I do layers and layers and layers of recreating a piece that ends up sounding more real than what actually came through the microphone in the first place, and more like the experience I had when I was really there, which is the goal. Um, and I'll play you a piece that has lots and lots of layers, and then listen for some of that background, and then talk to you about how I layered this. This is part of an hour-long documentary called Green Rush that I recently produced for American Radio Works. It's about making money by making the switch to green energy. 
And uh, this segment is about a green credit card that's being used in Holland and is soon coming to the United States. Um, and what the card does is it, it calculates your CO2, greenhouse gas pollution, from the products you buy and offers to offset them for free for you. So you don't get air miles, you get offsets. Um, and so what we learn about how this green credit card works by going to Amsterdam uh, and going shopping with a couple who are going to use their green credit card. Um, this was recorded by Chris Chambers at Radio Netherlands. Um, I produced the story and edited it, and uh, it's narrated by Michael Montgomery. So this is a four-minute piece, and um, I'll play it and then talk a little bit. We should get some gas for the car. Yeah, you know a place to go? Close yeah, here? Yeah, there's one near the, the parking garage. Okay. For three years, shoppers in the Netherlands have had the chance to live the carbon-neutral life simply by using their credit cards. At least that's what the Dutch company Tendris is promising. Tendris will undo the harm you do when you buy things that use fossil fuels or when you buy the fossil fuel itself. Wherever you go, go Texaco. This is where we go. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Gijs Selstra. And my name is Margreet Charlesma. I'm the wife of Gijs. And we brought our son Abe with us, 10 years old. Anyway, so we're going to the Haarlemmerstraat now, I guess. Gijs, Mirhe, and their son are shopping for gas, clothes, maybe some books and chocolate. They're armed with their green credit card. Uh, can you help me? We're looking for um, for jeans. Where can I uh, try it on? Oh yeah. This one is all right, I think. How does it uh, feel? A little tight, huh? Yeah. Well, in total, it'll be 181 euros and 14 cents. You need your uh, green card again. The only difference with this credit card is that it compensates the carbon dioxide that is emitted for the production of the products that we have bought. Never heard of it, but it is very interesting. You didn't know? You don't know? You didn't so actually, you have to buy more and more and more for a better world. <laughs> to make for a better world, Green Card claims to do two things. It uses a complex algorithm to estimate the amount of carbon emissions created in each purchase, called a product's carbon footprint. Then it neutralizes these emissions through carbon offsets. Amber Nystrom of Tendris explains that Green Card tries to take carbon out of the air by having trees planted. So we would be taking a small percentage of the money generated in that financial transaction and investing that in preserving a tree that would cleanse that CO2. There you are. This is your receipt. Abe, you coming? Okay. What did we uh, buy right now? Uh, trousers well, we for you trousers, yeah. and a t-shirt for yeah. Abe. And how much was it all together? <laughs> 180. Oh, no, um, what do you think? How many trees um, should we have planted right now with this amount of money? But it is not the amount of money that they compensate, but the CO2 that is used. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand. Well, let's see where we go now. Have you seen anything? Oh, this is in Unlimited Delicious. I want to go in here. There's chocolate. We can't pass here. The family buys some chocolate and moves on to the bookstore. This is the book they were talking about. It was on this uh, radio show on Sunday morning. And what about yeah. the CO2 uh, emission from this, it from is. a book? More than chocolate. Well, <laughs> more than yeah, I guess it's more than chocolate. 
I haven't got a clue actually. I don't know. It's just um, intuition. Well, what you do, you print it and you cut yeah, it and you uh, and you make the paper and um, you have to transport it and it has to be here in the shop with the light stuff like that. I would think it's less CO2 than uh, the clothes and I think it's more CO2 than the chocolate. Yeah, well, let's see it on the bill later. Yeah, we can afterwards. see it on the on the bill. Yeah. <laughs> Back at home, the family analyzes the purchases they made with their green card. They hit the internet to count their trees. Now let's see how much um, carbon we uh, are compensating. Login visa. Mm -hmm. There we go. All right. What you can see here is the CO2 credits this month, 427 what, this what, month. What does it mean, 427? Yeah, that's a good question. This says 16 credits is equals one tree. Okay? That's clear. That's clear. For uh, getting gas, we compensated our CO2 by four trees. And it's only the gas, so that's not yeah. the... The, the trousers and the chocolate and uh, all the other stuff. That's well, that's not I too think. bad. We had a good day. Yeah. We saved the earth. <laughs> um, so this is four and a half minutes, and it's almost all verite. There is a little bit of narration. There's a self-ID in the beginning. Uh, there's one interview with Amber saying this is how it works. Um, and it's all constructed <laughs> uh, in, a, in a complex mix. Uh, Chris, the sound recordist, was wonderful about getting me all the ambiences and all the effects that were going on there. And uh, so as you heard things like the clothes moving on the rack um, at the store, the cash register ringing, the chimes in the street, uh, the dog barking in the bookstore, the keys before they, count, they go up the steps and the boy counts the steps, the keys in the lock in the door, the uh, the computer keys and the ambience of the computer and then all the ambiences in all the different locations. All of those were recorded on location but not necessarily at the time that you heard that piece of, of voice. There are a number of re reasons to do this. One is um, that if, you know, if I want that bell chime and the bell happened to chime at a time when somebody was saying something I didn't end up using in the piece, I don't have it. But if I also get Chris to give me a clean bell chime, I can put it back into the scene underneath the piece, which I do end up using. So it gives you more opportunity to use effects and also to place them where you want so that they don't go on step on top of a word, but between words or between sentences, so you can bring them out a little bit louder. Um, I, uh, I can balance the relative amount of ambience to voice, which is really important, uh, to be able to bring it up enough to really be in that place, but not so loud so that you can't, uh, so it kind of covers or take, distracts you away from, from your voices. And I can dip them in and out. Or for instance, in the car, at the very beginning, uh, the narrator comes on and I run low, but still under him, some car so that, um, you don't want to think that he's in the car with them. It's obvious he's not. But you also don't want to be jolted out of the scene by having completely clean narration. So you're kind of playing with the ambiences throughout. As they leave the store and go to the street, the store ambience fades away, and the street comes up pretty hard. And you get this idea, oh, OK, they are walking outside. So it helps create the scene that was really there that 
might not have been, if I had just cut the pieces of voice that I wanted, wouldn't have sounded as real as, as I could make it sound. Um, I uh, uh, also match the backgrounds between voices so you don't hear the background changing um, a, a, as much as, as you would otherwise. Uh, so I wanted to, we've got 15 minutes here, uh, open this up a little bit to some of the questions I've raised about manipulation in, uh, in Verite. Um, there are a lot of ways I've manipulated these people and so have the other, the other producers here. Um, and I thought maybe I'd raise a few of them. I can play some uh, more examples or if you guys got questions, that's great. But let me sort of just throw three questions out at you. Um, when you're creating a verite scene, um, how much do you feel uh, that you can, that it's correct to set up a situation for people who are doing something real. Like, for instance, Heiss and Merhey really do use their credit card to really go shopping, but they weren't going shopping that day. They were going shopping that day because Chris called them and said, how about if we do it this day? And they said, oh, yeah, we're free. We can do that, and we need some jeans anyway. Um, took it a step further, however. Uh, they live out of town. Chris lives in town, and they couldn't take the time to drive back to their house, so they went to Chris's house. And we made it Heiss's house, Heiss and Rahe's house. Is that crossing the line? And for for which for, for some of you, um, how much can you interject questions into a scene? Now, Chris stayed pretty far out of this, but I'm sure he asked some questions like when they went outside, can you talk to each other about how many trees you think this was? Now they probably at some point in their time shopping do have that conversation, but they had it at this point most probably because I had asked Chris to make sure this kind of conversation happened. You know, how much manipulation can we have to create a scene? Second question, how much manipulation can an editor do to build a scene? Is it okay to take effects and ambiences recorded on location, put them someplace else in the scene? Beyond that, most people would say that's sort of within the realm. Is it crossing the line to take some effects from a different location if you didn't have them and put them in the scene? If I can't get the sheet bars from one place, can I borrow sheet bars from a friend who got good bars from a different country, maybe, and let sheep pretty much sound the same and put them in there? I won't say whether I did that or not. Uh, it's, can one use a sound that is actually a completely different sound and pretend it's something else? It turns out that a squirt gun squirted into a bucket sounds like milking a, co a goat. If you didn't get the goat milking, can you do that? I won't say whether I did that or not. Uh, third question, editing voices. Can you combine a person's voice from two locations? I recorded somebody here. I also recorded them there talking on the same topic. Can I take a piece of that put it into here where he really was there and really talking about that thing, but that piece of tape wasn't from that place. Is that crossing the line? Is it ever okay to record somebody without their knowledge? Is that further crossing the line? Is it okay ever to record with knowledge and with permission when afterwards the subject says, I don't want to use it? So I'd love to hear, I, I don't think there's an answer to any of these things, and I think there is a spectrum, but I'd love to have some discussion around how other people feel about those things. I was just going to ask you uh, sort of a different question. About okay, your uh, or anything else. Um, <laughs> but they are very interesting topics. Um, 
I was interested. You said that you have you, you, you run for me like a forty to one or sixty to one ratio for gathering sound. I was just wondering about how do you manage all of that? Like, I mean, you, I I'm assuming you do not transcribe all of that. Like, how do you? I mean, how do you how do you move? Like, do you do you do script writing? Do you work directly in sound? How do you move from raw audio to um, your your session? Well, I have an hour and a half lecture on that very topic. If you want to <laughs> stick around, but in about five sentences, um, I do a log everything, do not transcribe everything, unless I have money, and then I get somebody else to transcribe everything. But I listen to everything once, sometimes just summary, this idea I don't need, but this is what it was, or next level log, this is approximately what happened, or next level, I think I might use this, and then I transcribe, still not word for word, but pretty close. Then I go through all those logs, and I mark in black, boldface, giving it brackets and number, this is a piece I think I actually might take for all of my transcribed parts of my logs. Then I do a script version that is in story order. My original concept paper was in thesis order, but this is now how I see the story playing out. Main idea, one, two, three, four, this is how I think the story ideas are going to play out. Then I take those pieces of marked selects and I move them in to the various places where they might go. And then I have maybe under one topic, there are five or six things which should go here. Well, I'll mark the audio the way I marked the text so that I can get back and forth to them and physically take those pieces of text, put them all together on a track, listen to the five and say, well, two of them are really good, throw the other two out, cut those two. And then my next level of script takes those two and writes them out, transcribes them, and then I keep playing, playing with it. So you do have like kind of a, a script that comes out of it before going to... At that point, I go back and forth, script, audio, script, audio. Then I listen to everything I have and say, no, everything's got to be moved around. And I usually move around script and then match to audio and then match the script to the audio I actually did. And then, yes, yeah, so I'm back and forth between the two. I'm not sure that I have the answers either to some of the questions that you raised. Yeah. And even if you don't give us your answers, I'd like to know what your thinking is, though. What are the guidelines that you tell yourself when you come up against those questions about mm -hmm. manipulation, how does your thinking relate to what other documentary makers are doing these days? Um, I may go a little bit beyond the line of a lot of other people. This question comes up a lot on the air daily, and you'll notice I don't respond, <laughs> so I don't get beaten up. Um, but I'd say my bottom line of ethics is um, I want to recreate something that sounds like what I experienced there. I want a piece where the people who are in it, who if they listen to it, they'll say, that's what it was like there. And I give my, my subjects a lot of freedom to censor in order to have them open up. And so my deal whenever I'm doing verite is basically, I'm going to tell you when I'm turning on. And when you tell me to turn off, I will turn off and ask for permission to turn on again. And whenever I am on, any time before I leave this room today, the recording room we're in, you can turn to me and say, I know you recorded that, but I changed my mind. I really shouldn't have said that on tape. And I'll ask them to say that on the mic so I have a record and I promise them I won't use it. I do that for a couple of reasons. One, they have given me a tremendous amount of themselves to offer for me to record their real lives. And so I, I'm giving them some protection over that. And secondly, if they feel they have the freedom to 
change their mind within that time, they're much more open to talk and to relax and to say stuff. And they very rarely say, oh, whoops, I didn't mean that. When I take that tap tape and I tell them this too and leave for the day, then it's my tape. Then they've given me, in fact, permission to use it. And I also always get permission on tape. Say, I know that I'm being recorded. This is my name, and you have permission to use me. And what do your critics say about that? Um, well, there, you know, well, which, which part of that? that sure. I mean, if, if you are, you know, if you consider yourself in one school, sort of documentary uh -huh. so. Well, I think the people on both sides, some would say that as a journalist, you have the right to this tape. Once they've said they've given you permission, it's on the record, and if they change their mind, too bad for them. And I, as a documentarian, want to take that further. Um, in terms of the level of manipulation, um, I think a lot of people are much more hardline that you can never use anything that wasn't recorded on location. And even then, there are some people who say, if it didn't happen right there, you can't build a scene through sound effects and beds. I think most people are there, though, in terms of documentaries, that they, that we sort of, there's a general agreement that of the location sound. There have been times when I've taken sound from someplace else and used it within a scene, and some people would say that's absolute no-no. But I don't do it in any way that would change the piece. For example, those sheep. You know, I was recording in Marin County, California, and I was on a fish pole with a fuzzy, and there was a bunch of sheep, and the closer I would bring those fi the, that fish pole with this fuzzy animal coming at them, you know, these sheep were thinking, wolf, and they were just backing away from me, and I could not get any sheep buzz. And my friend, who's a sound recordist and recorded in Wales, the sheep, and the, you know, she's got great boz and I used her boz. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But some people would say, if you couldn't get it there, then you have no boz in your piece. I know so. there are other questions, but has your thinking changed much since you started making doc? So did you become more loose about what you would use, mm -hmm. or did you become tighter about what you would use? I don't really know. I think You've it, always kind of done it the same way? I, I think that it, it it changes with the reality of each piece more than um, I don't know when I don't know if I can answer that question where when and when I've how I've developed. Thanks. I work in theater as mm -hmm. well as being a reporter, and as far as making uh, using a squirt gun to recreate a milking cow, you find in theater because mm -hmm. that's fiction. But I would never do that for something real. Uh, fr frankly, I don't. I wouldn't either. I have used it to um, as ambience when, uh, when I had a um, interview of somebody talking about history, about how he used to do it by hand, and it was clearly an an effect that was coloring an interview. Nobody, you weren't supposed to feel like you were in the milking barn, but you were just sort of hearing about life back then. Would you ever leave a recorder? Would you ever leave a recorder behind to see what you might get? I mean, do you have? Do people have to know that you're recording in the room? Obviously, if you have a big mic and headphones on, people assume you're doing that. Do people have to know while you're doing it that you're actually recording? Yes, uh, that's and, one of my rules. And what about leaving a recorder? My equipment's too expensive. Leaving leaving a little mini disc somewhere and I, just seeing what you get. Is that fair? I don't think so. I mean, I the only time I record when people don't 
not even then. I'd say when I'm in like a cafe and I just want to get cafe ambience, it's still pretty clear. Um, Jessica and I did cafe ambience for a piece she's working on, and we were in this cafe, but I was like, with all this equipment on, with my mic here, anybody who looked at me, I would sort of nod and say, no, be quiet, because I'm getting the room. <laughs> but I didn't ask their permission, because I wasn't trying to get any voice, I was trying to get non-voices. And what's the level that you have to identify people who are speaking? Is there a certain, you know, we're so, yeah. I know in photography, whenever a photographer takes a picture for a paper, Everyone's got to have a name, and their name has to be spelled out correctly, even the dogs sometimes, um, <laughs> which seems like the biggest question. People go, what's the name of the dog? Um, when do you have to identify who's speaking? I, um, in documentary, there's a, a, a line I want to draw between not interrupting my story by constantly saying, now this person's speaking, now this one, now this one, now this one, but let the scene flow. On the other hand, I want to make sure people aren't interrupted by thinking, who was that speaking? So I want the, my, my motive is for people to feel comfortable with the level of knowing. So what I try to do is, um, first time someone speaks, ID them and make my audience know, okay, this is somebody I can trust because I know that they have this degree or that they're an expert in this or that they're part of this scene. And then if you hear a bunch of people later on who you know you've heard before but you don't quite remember which one was which, I'll let that ride as long as the audience knows those were all people who I've been, who I've accepted as being okay to be part of this. If there are three people in a group talking, and I'll say their names in the beginning, maybe as each speaks, and then they get into it, you may not follow which one was which, but you know these three people are here for a reason, and I know who basically they all are. That's the level I'm at with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm working with a couple of uh, reporters on a documentary, and I'm their editor, and there's a point in this documentary where there's you, you talked about recreating a scene in which you were there, so you know what that scene was like. Mm -hmm. This is a scene where they were not there. It was 20 years ago in Mexico for a wedding. And I'm saying to them, well, you know, what was the town like 20 years ago? Was it, they were, it's not paved, it was dirt. And I said, well, isn't there a town nearby that's still dirt that you could go record, you know, walking down the dirt and the church bells in that town? And she said, I'm not doing that. So, I mean, I'm curious about how I... Um, ethically explain, or is it legitimate to say, that was a memory, it's a recreation of a memory, there's more leeway there mm -hmm. to be inventive without being dishonest, and how do you be honest to that moment if you weren't there? Well, some of it is in the tone of the uh, piece you're doing, like, so are these interviews, or is it, it sounds like it's interviews rather than verite. So what you're doing is putting a background of ambience to make you feel like the place. That's sort of like the milking cow to me. This old timer was saying how it was in the old days. Now, obviously, he's not milking a cow. He's telling me about how he used to milk 40 years ago. And when you hear squirt, 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 you know that's not him actually sitting there milking a cow. That's part, that's part of the memory. I remember how this happened. I remember what it sounded like. And that gives you more leeway, I think, than... Um, if it's actually verite. So that isn't verite to me. That's storytelling with an ambience bed. And there I think you have more leeway than pretending this town is actually that town, which I feel a little uncomfortable about, very uncomfortable. I wouldn't do that. So, so they're not, I mean, we're not going to, we are pretending that town was that town, but it's in, 
it's in the context of very clearly stating this is what they remember or right this is I mean, what they remember right into that to make it clear to your audience that you're not pretending it is that this is a well I, I don't and know and I can't say the word dramatization because they'll kill me I don't know exactly how what what your term should be for writing it in but yeah there's a way of writing it in that says that just clues your audience that that um, this is uh, all back in her memory. It might be in um, some music that brings you back, or um, or if the voice becomes sort of uh, echoey, mm -hmm. that helps. And then you know you're in dream time. Mm -hmm. And they also have a videotape of this wedding though, that's real. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's enough to carry it, and I'm not even sure we should use it. I haven't heard it all yet, but that could complicate it, right? Because that is real. <laughs> Good. Good luck. <laughs> I wanted to say one more thing before this breaks up, um, which is one solution I have to all of this is I love to do what I call giving a nod to the mic. If, there are, if you are given, sort of as a gift in your recording, um, a moment where your characters acknowledge the fact that there's a recording going on. I like to include that. And it takes you out of time, but it also says to your audience, this is, you know, remember folks, this isn't really real. This is just radio or just film. And the best time uh, example I have of that is a, a film I made many years ago um, where uh, the uh, family is in the kitchen, the mom's cooking, and the little boy, he's maybe six years old, comes in, and the camera goes to him, and he throws back his arms, and he says, wow, look at all those lights. And everybody's like really embarrassed and really quiet, like he shouldn't have done that. And then they go on like it never happened. And I just left the whole thing in. And it just said, look, audience, there's a camera crew in the room that has lit the room. Um, I want to play you one of those in radio, um, one of those nods to the mic. Uh, I got a couple, but I'll just play you one. Um, that, uh, this is also from that uh, Green Rush piece for American Radio Works. The credit card company has a competitor here in the U.S. They're coming up with a company, na a name for their card. And this is the scene where they're sitting around trying to decide what name to call their credit card. And uh, Michael Galopter, one of the characters, just gave me this little gift. The first order of business is to nail down a name from a list developed by branding company Lexicon. Chris Erickson, Michael Galopter, and Carter Brooks discuss their options. So we're going to try and settle our naming, all right? Oh, yeah. this, is the, this is the drama part of the, of the radio show. Lexicon gave us actually 43 names, and... Um, in the descriptive names, they have green 2.0, green side, triple green, green silk, ooh, smooth. In the more corporate sounding names, they had Varion, seven across, change point, like tipping point. Um, then they had sort of zippy names like Zift and Wix and Zeal with an X. We had names like Biome and capital G and Cooler. The name they gravitate to is Cooler. We could call our products cooler, like the cooler card, mm -hmm. um, cooler shopping. Yeah, if we start figuring out some of those plays on cooler. Be cool. Cooler inside. Be a climate cooler. I think it all works. So we go with cooler in that case. I want there to be a little more tension here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man, I'm fighting for green side. Yeah, I want green rewards. <laughs> 
So he just is acknowledging the fact that we're recording this for, he, they're having this conversation for my benefit. Um, although they're having the conversation anyway. And I just left that in. And I gives it a little, little perk, but it also keeps me honest. Yeah. Uh, I had, uh, I'm remembering an, uh, an article that I'd seen on the Newsweek magazine when Martha Stewart got out of jail. Uh, they were talking about how the picture was doctored, and when they brought in the Newsweek editors to explain the photo, they were like, well, we were just enhancing it, and, and everybody understands that it was... Anyway, so as we start to talk about what is okay to dramatize, I think we should keep in mind that one thing that I heard years ago about what's a conflict of interest was, what if your listeners heard about exactly. it? And, and I think that maybe like the squirt gun, which, which I was the most appalled at if it was ever actually done, would be to say, if your audience ever found out, I mean, how would they really feel right. about and, and something that was... So that was a good question for me to always ask on other elements about conflict. Well, if my audience knew, if my audience understood that this was a memory and that these sound effects weren't somebody actually milking a goat but me remembering how it was and found out that it wasn't a real uh, goat. How would they feel about it? It's different than if he was sitting there saying, here I am milking the goat, squirt, squirt, and it wasn't a real, he wasn't really doing it. So that's what I do. But and even just, you know, the docudramas on TV and the thing that they just had on NBC mm -hmm. about the guy who was recreating something that he had really filmed momentarily ago, but it, uh, it didn't take, so he did it again with the wobbling camera effect. Uh, Right, because that's right. really what he did, but it didn't take. And, and I think that once we start to get into that world, I don't it's know, maybe it is not really truth. Yeah, maybe it is I not know. truth anymore. But when you point a camera here and take a picture and decide not to take that picture, you've already manipulated your picture. Just, just as much as if you take this and decide to crop down to that. So um, to me, for instance, when I edit, uh, this also goes not just for Verit, but for all of radio uh, uh, documentary, when I take a 20-minute interview and edit it down to two pieces, heavy manipulation there, guys. So I have to, my point is, I listen to two minutes and I say, if my uh, interview subject heard those two minutes, would he say, yeah, that's what I said? Or might even say, gosh, I didn't know I said that so succinctly. But that's what I meant to say. Or would he say, I said no, and you said yes, because, you know, that's what you can't do. So that's where I generally draw the line. So we're over time. I'll go on forever, but if people want to come up and ask questions. Or <laughs>